<laughs> we work so hard to get stronger, happier, more productive and successful. Don't forget the secret ingredient. Get grounded in play. Play grounding when it's time to get a life. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Playgrounding. This is your host, Kara Stewart-Fortier, and I'm not in the treehouse today, I'm sorry to say. At the publishing of this particular episode, I will be really, really tired and really, really excited, um, I'm sure, at the same time, because I will have just finished two conferences. First, I ran off to the Burning Man Global Leadership Conference in Oakland, then red-eyed it out to South Carolina for the U.S. Play Coalition's Play Conference, and I'm going to be taking a lot of time over the next few months um, unpacking the experiences there, I'm sure. But this week, this episode is probably one of the most dense and densely packed with information and amazingness that I've ever brought. Um, just the sheer amount of of content <laughs> that is about to be presented. Um, wow, I'm so excited. I finally had the opportunity to speak with someone that I've been wanting to interview since my very first real interview for Playgrounding over a year ago. His name is Stuart McMillan. Now, he's an artist. He creates science communications comics. He takes complex studies and subjects, and he spends vast amount of time researching them, and then he breaks it down for us lay people in the form of a comic. He's really amazing. He's been widely successful. He's had millions of readers. And when I wanted more information about the Rat Park study that I spoke about many times on Playgrounding, uh, first with Meg Rabbit in episode two when she told me about it, I was able to more easily access the concepts of the study and get a feel for what it's really about by reading Stuart's comic more than really reading anything else that I was, you know, finding on Google and that kind of thing. Um, and he does his homework. Um, the list of resources is, uh, for each one of these things is just gigantic. Um you might be asking yourself, how does play figure into it? Is it just because it's a comic? Um, no, not even a little bit. I know I've talked about him before. Um, what I decided I really wanted to do is spend more time studying the dangers of not playing. Um, they're really dangers that are lurking when we don't allow ourselves to participate in play. Yes, even as adults. The Rat Park study itself tells us a lot about these dangers in the form of addictions, and we'll also be talking about another psychological study that he worked on called, well, that he um, did a comic on called Deviance in the Dark, and this one helps us further explore what happens when we isolate ourselves and deny the truth of who we are as human beings um, for too long. So after we get a good foothold on the basics of what these topics are about and kind of go over these two comics and what like these two studies were and some of the conclusions that came out of these studies, we will go off into a world that if you like this podcast at all, so I guess what I'm really asking is if you think like, oh, we're just learning about these studies, please hold on um, because if you like this podcast at all, the conversation that will follow once we kind of give you these this context is a conversation you will not want to miss. It's very much at the heart of why I'm I'm so passionate about helping adults realize the importance of play and making it a part of our daily lives. It also gives me one more clue as to why gatherings like Burning Man and things like that touch people the way they do. And we can get a handle on this through science. 
it's science. Um, so buckle up and there's a lot of information coming to you, but hold on and get to the second half of, of the, well, yeah, to th get to the later part of the conversation. You will be so glad you did um, and learned so much from Stuart. So now meet Stuart McMillan. Thank you so much for joining me, Stuart. This is a huge honor. No worries, Cara. <laughs> um, so as many of my listeners know, I've been very obsessed with uh, something called the Rat Park Study. I mentioned it in a few different episodes. Um, your your comic that you did, drew of the Rat Park Study is actually my go-to for sort of like trying to understand it. And you're not a scientist, but you make it so understandable and you've done such a depth of research that I had to speak with you. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's good because I guess <laughs> what what happened before the experiment, oh, sorry, what happened before the comic version that I released mm -hmm. was um, other people had tried telling the Rat Park story, but I think they ob oversimplified it mm -hmm. um, by, by um, talking about... Uh, the, the experiment without revealing some of the nuances of what really happened. Mm -hmm. So when I released my comic, uh, which was in 2013, I wanted to make that sort of the definitive version of the experiment that mm -hmm. told the truth of it without too much um, oversimplification. Got it. Oh, yeah. And, and so I've sort of given it a gloss over. So if you wouldn't mind, um, can you give us a a description of the Rat Park study, something, and I want to ask you later, you dig into so many amazing details and the research that you did. So if you could just give us like a quick, here's what the study is about, and then I want to dive into it a little bit deeper, um, and also some of the other comics that you've done. Hmm. So it's probably best to explain the Rat Park experiment in contrast to the other experiments that happened before it. Mm -hmm. So um, th there are a lot of um, infamous studies that you're your listeners are probably aware of where scientists um, quote unquote proved that drugs are addictive by taking lab rats or taking monkeys or some sort of mammal and locking them in a cage and putting some sort of a, you know, putting a, a tube into the jugular vein of, <laughs> um, of the animal and giving it a button and giving it the opportunity to press the button and get a, 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 an injection an of psychoactive drugs. <laughs> Sounds terrible. And, <laughs> and guess what they proved, quote unquote, proved with those experiments. They proved that animals, if given the chance to take drugs, will, uh, they'll, take drugs continuously until they avoid food and water and they die. So therefore, uh, drugs are such a dangerous thing that we should uh, not allow anyone to ever use them because they'll automatically become addicted to them and forsake all other elements of a balanced life and become a slave to the chemical. <laughs> so that, that was the experimental uh, line of thinking that happened in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, and then along came Professor Bruce Alexander uh, from Vancouver and his teammates. And in the late 1970s, they, they conceived these experiments um, in contrast to the earlier experiments. They thought, well, those older experiments were an unnatural way of actually testing the addictive properties of drugs because 
it's not really surprising if you take a social creature like a rat and give it no other option, no other stimulation other than pressing a button to get uh, an injection of drugs or not pressing the button and not getting an injection of drugs <laughs> and being, being stuck alone in this cage. Uh, of course, of course they'll press the button. So he realized that rats are social creatures. They like to live in large groups. They like to interact with each other. If you've, if you've taken them away from that social grouping mm -hmm. and if you've put them in an, an isolated environment, that's unnatural to begin with. Yeah. So, uh, so what he did, him and his three teammates, he, um, he, uh, he, he continued to run experiments where rats were in isolation and they had no option but to, well, they had the choice of taking uh, morphine-laced water mm -hmm. or uh, water without the morphine. But he also, as well as having those rats in cages, he also had rats that were in a large social environment called Rat Park, which was, uh, I think it was 8.8 uh, 8 .8 square meters. It was a large environment where rats uh, could play with each other. They had wood shavings to burrow around in. They had little tin cans to to play on. <laughs> um, uh, I mentioned the word play. I think you're uh, yes, your exactly. eyes. <laughs> yeah, play on, play on tin cans, play on running wheels. They could, you know, mate with each other and do all those kind of rat things that rats like doing with each other. <laughs> and um, they they had uh, they could individually go up a little ramp into a tunnel and. They had a, a left choice and a right choice of which water they would be drinking. They could either choose the water with morphine, which is, of course, morphine is a drug which is very similar to heroin. Mm -hmm. It's another opioid drug similar to heroin. They could choose the drugged water or they could choose the uh, just the plain water without any drugs. Mm -hmm. And so they ran two permutations of this experiment. The first one was called kicking the habit. Mm -hmm. So that was one where they actually um, they force they, they went through a period where the rats only had the ability to take morphine laced water. Mm -hmm. And during that forced exposure period, they had no choice but to become um, physically dependent on the drugs. And then after that forced dependence period, f forced exposure period, they, they gave the rats the choice of whether they wanted to take the continue to take the drugged water or whether they would take the straight water. Mm -hmm. And what they found was the rats that were in the cages chose to continue taking drugged water. The rats in the social environment, Rat Park, they actually chose to step down their consumption. Hmm. I mean, they, they were still physiologically addicted um, to the drugs. Um, uh, so they did continue to have some, um, you know, some of the morphine water, but it did seem as though they were weaning themselves off wow. the morphine, which seems to be because, um, I mean, we may be anthropomorphizing here, but <laughs> it seems <laughs> it seems that they were um, they would have they would prefer to have their normal rat interactions with each other in the enclosure without the um, the, the substances interfering with that mm -hmm. yeah uh, because remember they were sort of force force fed um this morphine for i think it was a period of 57 days or something like that wow. so that was one permutation of the experiment which was where they were um, they were forced the drugs and then given the choice whether to take it or not take it 
the ones in the cages continued to take it at a high rate. Mm -hmm. The ones in the social enclosure chose to wean themselves off it over time. Uh, and the other, the other experiment was called the seduction experiment, where they took rats um, who hadn't been physiologically addicted or, should I say, physiologically dependent mm -hmm. on the morphine. They wanted to tempt the rats into taking morphine. So what they did was they, um, they knew that rats really like sweet things. So what they did was they, they laced water with sugar, which is something that the rats would really like to, to drink normally. Mm. But they also, they put morphine in the water. And um, rats don't normally like the, the bitter taste of morphine because they really prefer sweet things over bitter things. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess it was a, well, this is interesting in itself because, um, when a lot of people talk about drugs like heroin and cocaine and, and drugs like that, we often think about them as being so inherently seductive that if mm -hmm. we even allow them into a, a room of high school kids, all these <laughs> high schoolers are, are just going to immediately become drug addicts and become zombies because mm -hmm. they... They have no choice but to slavishly take the drugs and then follow the <laughs> follow the chemical addiction for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's it's interesting that rats, which are mammals just like us, they it took extreme experimental pressure to make the rats even want to take this drug in the first place. Which huh. was they gradually they gradually stepped up the amount of sugar. Well, for the the rats in the rat park experiment mm -hmm. to to even want to take it, mm -hmm. so. They found that the rats that were in the isolated cages chose to take the, the morphine at a much earlier rate than the rats in the social enclosure. The rats in the social enclosure were um, similar to the other experiment that I mentioned. They seemed to be content just having their normal rat behaviours and playing and uh, interacting with, e with each other without the drugs. But um, mm. yeah, so gradually they stepped up the amount of sugar until the rats you know, they, they went for it eventually because it was so sweet and so tempting that, mm. yeah. But there was a clear difference. I guess the overall message from these experiments is that there was a big difference in the way that the rats behaved in the social environment where they had the ability to play, where they, where they had the ability to interact with other rats compared to the isolated cages where the rats had no ability to... Uh, yeah. I'll say that again, where the rats had no ability to do anything but live in isolation and choose to either take drugs or not take drugs. Yeah, in, in a miserable state. Wow. Exactly. So I guess what this all boils down to is that when we think of substance abuse, when we think of drug addiction, it's not a black and white thing where people behave in a certain way where they are slaves to the chemicals. Mm -hmm. They actually, there are social factors and there are situational factors that influence whether someone will either take drugs in the first place mm -hmm. and whether they'll become um, addicted to the drugs as well. Wow. Well, you know, I this is a this is an incredibly fascinating topic. And, you know, I, I what I really, really wanted to sort of emphasize and why I really wanted to talk to you is 
Not only is it fascinating enough for you to want to go do almost a year's worth of research, but also to create one of your comics, you you mostly, uh, I guess maybe until then, I know you do a little more of this stuff, um, do a lot of stuff on the environment, your, you know, your work is just amazing, but this was something you studied for quite some time, and you dug deep, you actually spoke to the researchers. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe about why you did it, and some of the work you did to try to become the definitive you know, mm. person on this subject. Yeah, so you're right that I, I got into this comics, um, science communication comics, because I was really interested in spreading environmental messages and mm -hmm. um, using that as a communication tool to enlighten people about the environment. But probably the irony is that <laughs> those are the comics that people don't want to read and the ones <laughs> that have become the most successful of mine are the ones where I'm talking about uh, amusing ourselves to death, where I'm talking about George Orwell's 1984 compared <laughs> to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Um, there's also Rat Park, which um, is probably my most popular comic to date, which has had many millions of readers all across the web. It's been translated into multiple languages. Wow. And I guess in this case, this was just a, a really interesting experiment that I, um, I learned about. And in contrast to a lot of other famous psychological experiments like, um, you know, Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment or Milgram's uh, electric shock experiment, this Rat Park study when I was doing this research in 2012 wasn't really well known on the internet or just in general. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought that I wanted to, it was such an interesting experiment and I knew that it would lend itself to comics because that's another factor that I bring into consideration oh, as a comics artist because obviously rats. rats are cute, as you <laughs> said, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I just, I wanted almost to, to repay the scientists for the work that they'd done wow. doing the research in the first place, because mm -hmm. obviously science isn't any good to anyone if it's just sitting on a shelf somewhere and it's not actually in the brains of people out there in society. Wow. So I, I wanted to share their research with the world, but because I'm such a perfectionist and I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a keen researcher, I, I, I realized if I wanted to do this, I wanted to do it right. And I wanted to really um, iron out a lot of simplifications or oversimplifications that mm -hmm. I'd seen other writers do and pre present as close as I could um, the most definitive version of the comic. Mm -hmm. If people want to know even more about the comic, there's a, a blog post that I released at the same time as the comic called A Bustle in the Cage Row which is, it goes into some of the other factors of the Rat Park experiment that were just, um, probably would have bogged down the comic if I would have included them mm -hmm. in, in, in the comic. Yeah, it's but, really extensive. I, I read a bunch of the background material you sent and I was just blown away. I mean, I, I thought, you know, it was so easy to understand. It was so easy to read. I feel like I got what you were trying to say. And but going into the depth that you studied for such a long time and speaking with the scientists, I just, I have so much respect for the work that you do. Um, yeah. And great. by the way, Cara, just if you would compare 
my Rat Park comic with mm -hmm. the Rat Park Wikipedia article, mm -hmm. I think that comics are such a great communication tool oh, to be yeah. able to explain, um, especially something like this where, where you do have, you know, you can understand how many rats were involved and you can see that the, you know, the rat ex uh, enclosure was this large compared to the cages which were this large. I think yeah. that um, hopefully our society is getting over the snooty attitude that we have towards comics mm -hmm. where we, we, we just imagine, oh, well, of course, um, it's better to write it out in full paragraphs because that's how, that's how <laughs> proper people explain themselves. But I, th I think we're now moving into sort of the era where infographics and things yes. like that are... Um, have more of a place yes and i would and if you want to call it an infographic whatever you want to call it what you do is just makes it so easy and and i don't want to go down this rabbit hole really but i just have to say especially at a time like this where where our political I mean, political leaders in my country at least are wanting to call science into question on many in many areas and so it's more and more important as time goes by i think to have things like what you do to help us communicate what are seemingly very complicated issues but <laughs> so studies like this you bringing it to the light of day is just a wonderful service um yep. there's another study that you actually drew my attention to and i i kind of want to talk about overall themes after we talk about this one because there's stuff we can talk about from rat park that directly affects play which you know it's kind of a well of course kind of thing but there's also the Deviants in the Dark, um, another comic of yours about another study. And if you could actually just go into this a little bit as well before we can kind of have a conversation about, you know, the big picture. Mm. Once again, I was keenly drawing about environmental issues and no one was reading my comics about environmental issues. And so I came across a classic psychological experiment <laughs> from the um, from the early 1970s, which was published uh, under the name Deviance in the Dark. Mm -hmm. So it was, I believe the experiments were in 1972 mm -hmm. and the the paper was published in 1973. Uh, it was by a husband and wife research team, Ken Gergen and Mary Gergen. And what they did was they, um, they put up flyers all around the university uh, in, in the USA and they, they, just, they wanted random uh, people to come and participate in a, in a uh, psychological experiment. So what ended up happening was they would they'd take a person um, into a classroom, they would get the person to fill out just a, a survey about their name, you know, their, their gender, their age, their education, that sort of thing, just general, general demographic information. Mm -hmm. And then they would take that one person, walk them down a hallway, they would say, we're going to take you into a room. It's going to be absolutely pitch black in this room. Uh, by the way, the, the room is about the size of sort of a large cargo elevator. It's about 10 feet by 12 feet. So it's, it's sort of like a padded room that you might imagine in a psychological hospital. Mm -hmm. that, that they walked this person down the hallway. They said, we're going to take you into this room. We're going to put you in the room in complete darkness for the next 60 minutes. Uh, there will be other people in the room with you. There are no rules as to what you can or should do within this room but we are going to take you from the room one by one and you'll never meet these people ever again in your life. Mm -hmm. So what happened was one by one, they took these eight people into the room. There were uh, four males and four females in the room. And they basically just, um, after the final one was in there, 
the people were left to their own devices as to deciding how they would behave with these uh, seven other strangers in the darkened room. Mm -hmm. That wasn't all they were doing because they were comparing how people, how these students would behave with each other in contrast to people who were in the exact same situation in a room that had a light bulb going so that they could see each other. Mm -hmm. And so that they were, they were comparing how people would behave when they were anonymous with each other in the darkness compared to how people behave with each other in in the light. Mm -hmm. This is taking a while for me to explain, Kara. If oh, only it's... there was some way that people could read about it in, in a graphical format. I think that might be important. I will definitely have these in the show note links. But, <laughs> well, and I just kind of want to like... I'm just joking. Of, I just want to sort of say too, as I was reading it, I was putting myself in the shoes of these people, the ones who go into the darkened room. They're, they're literally, they have no idea what's going to happen to them. They yep. walk in, they, they take a survey, and then they're being led into a room and they're being led in separately. Like, so they never see any of the people... And mm -hmm. if you just imagine yourself then alone, walked into a room, I'm sure that I, I'm guessing there was some kind of ante room or something where the gentleman had like, you know, the goggles on or that he could see or something. I'm not sure what, I, I was curious about that. Mm, yeah. um, but they're, they're brought in in complete darkness and sat down mm. in this room mm -hmm. and you don't even know if anyone's in there with you when you get there. It's, it sounds... Yeah. Really so of course, freaky. when you get in there, that they, yeah. they said, "Hey, is anyone else in here with me?" And if if they were the first person, there wasn't anyone in there. If they were the the eighth person, then yeah, seven other people were in the room with them. Oh, so and weird. so the, well, I mean, it depends whether that's something that thrills you or not. I'm but so but what what happened? <laughs> of course, if you're in a bright, if if you're in the room where the light bulb is on, you can just see that there are seven other people in the room with you. And what tended to happen in the bright room with the light bulb burning is all of the all of the students, because they did tend to be sort of in their early 20s, they they would just sit around on the floor, on the, on the padded floor, and they'd talk to each other. They'd, you know, say, so, you know, what do you do? What are you studying at university? You know, are you from here? Which, which town did you come from before you moved um, over here to Pennsylvania? <laughs> they, that they were just chattering continuously for the entire 60-minute duration of the experiment. Mm -hmm. What happened uh, and, and, and what the researchers said was, the, the topics discussed, because they were, they were listening in with the microphone, mm -hmm. the topics discussed did tend to be relatively um, shallow, if you mm -hmm. want to put it that way, just sort of talking about just general conversational things compared to in the dark room where it was almost like the people in the dark room didn't have to go through those um, early small talk things that a mm -hmm. lot of us do when we, when we meet someone for the first time. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there was a bit of that, but they also, the researchers who were, who were listening in with a, with a microphone, they, they noted that the people in the dark room seemed to go into a lot deeper topics, like talking about their, their hopes and dreams and fears and worries and kind of those sort of things that were on their mind, Wow. which, which is interesting that you would, um, you would get into that sort of thing more so with an anonymous stranger than yes. um, someone who you can see. But mm -hmm. um, it may be that when you cut off one of your senses, you need to sort of overcompensate with other ways that you conduct yourself. Yeah. Another difference bit between the people in the light room and the dark room, because the researchers had an infrared video camera, they could see sort of how close the people were to each other. Um, 
what happened was uh, in the in the the room with the light bulb on, the the people basically just sat in a spot and stayed there for the entire sixty minute duration <laughs> of the experiment. Yes. But what happened in the dark room is they they were moving around a lot. They were sort of crawling around on the floor having a little mini conversation with two or three people on one side of the room and then they'd sort of wander over to the other side of the room <laughs> and s sort of see or you know, they would f uh, find out who the other people were and sort of yeah so there was a lot of movement there was a lot of touching there was um people were bumping into each other accidentally mm -hmm. people were um intentionally touching each other which was something that just didn't happen yeah. in 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 the light rooms people didn't touch each other intentionally in the light rooms mm -hmm. people were holding hands people were touching each other's faces during wow. moments of intimacy they were some people even kissed each other during the experiment wow. and um I guess what the experimenters were looking at during this experiment was how people acted when they were temporarily anonymous with each other, but also permanently anonymous because what the, what the scientists had told them before walking in is we're going to take you into this room for 60 minutes and then we'll lead you out one by one and you'll never meet these people ever again. Yeah. So it's, it's almost as though people were acting in the ways that they wanted to act. Mm -hmm. um, regardless without, yeah. without social constraints mm -hmm. yeah. guiding their behaviors but the dark room itself wasn't the only thing apparently there was the a second round of them and in one of them they told the people in the dark room that they were going to meet later on or that the light would get turned on yep. and it was a little bit different um, yeah it was it was the same 60 minute experiment mm -hmm. but there was one difference which was they they walked the students one by one from the from the classroom to the experimental room and they said we're going to we're going to take you to this room there will be other people in there you'll be alone for you'll you'll be with them for 60 minutes and then after the experiment we'll introduce you to each other <laughs> and that seemed to stay in the minds of the people who were in the experiment because they, even though the conditions were exactly the same, even though it's the same room that uh, they were in the darkness, exactly the same, they chose not. They chose to behave as though the lights were on. They chose to behave by sitting in a circle and not moving around the room. They chose to not touch each other, wow. and they they. From what I can tell, based on the paper, they didn't um, get into those deep conversational topics that other the, the, the people who knew that they would permanently be anonymous from the others did yeah and so it's almost as though they were behaving well it's it's almost as though the the original people who knew that they would permanently be anonymous it's like they were behaving as though they would like to behave without the social constraints and social norms mm -hmm. guarding their behavior but it it's like the the people who were in the the experiment where they knew that they'd be introduced to each other mm -hmm. it's it's like they were anticipating seeing that person and looking them in the eyes and you know being judged by social norms Absolutely, afterwards yeah. like oh if if we if we if we <laughs> hold hands now then we'll have to look at each other and yeah. how can we how can we look at each other if we know that we've hold, held hands <laughs> what's that it going to mean <laughs> scandalous yeah <laughs> oh man like both of these studies reach me on such a deep level and I'm, I'm i'm not a science person i love science i love reading about science i i but i don't dig deep into these things and i had never heard of either one of these things um but with this one i have a hard time even hearing about it without getting a little lump in my throat because 
I, as I've said at other points on this podcast, that I loved Burning Man when I first went. And I didn't yeah. know why. And a lot yeah. of people are just like, oh, it's Burning Man. Oh, it's Larry Harvey. Oh, it's, you know, but I just couldn't, I wasn't about to go there. I needed to feel like, no, I don't, I don't want to add, add any magicalness to this organization. I just want to know what it was about this experience that was so dear to me. Um, and one of the things that struck me as I'm reading Deviants in the Dark is that when you go to Burning Man, you, a lot of people take a, a, a take a name take us a, a fake yeah, name like you know the, like the, the field name is yeah. that what it's called or, oh it's called right. paddock name out here in australia oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you take a name you go out there you wear clothes you would never ever wear you run around more and more you when you hear people talk about their first experiences if you go to the burning man journal they'll write in and, and sometimes get published a lot of it is cuddling with a stranger in a dust storm um, some of the most beautiful stories of just strangers coming into each other's lives for a moment. And then as soon as this dust storm is over, they say goodbye and they never see that person again. But it literally left an indelible impression on them for the rest of their lives. And and I always just thought, what is it about that place? Is it the playa? Is it this? Is it that? But as I read through this study and I learned more about it, I thought, we are so handicapped um, and, and, withdraw- and taken away from some basic parts of our humanity by the social structures we live in and we and in in that setting which is not the only setting in which these things can happen um people are allowed to be just set free to to explore their need for intimacy to you know <laughs> yeah um, well when i when i drew this deviance in the dark comic i hadn't been to a burn event or anything of that nature mm-hmm. but um since drawing and publishing the comic i have been to just a mini sort of burn event here uh close to the city that i live in here in australia oh cool Uh, just just a one night event so Mm. it wasn't one of those multi-day ones but i did feel um things similar to what you are describing with Mm. your burn experiences where you're um you're out there you're sort of making up the rules that you would like to to live under and the mm-hmm. ways that you would like to behave and interact with with each other mm-hmm. and yeah you do get into these deep conversations with people and um experience um things that uh that you wouldn't experience in terms of just connection that you feel with other people mm-hmm. um it, you, yeah you get deeper than you <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's it's like what i say towards the end of my deviance in the dark comic is that the people who were in the darkness with each other for 60 minutes reached a level of emotional intimacy that many people never get with their friends yeah. after knowing them for years and years and years yeah. and you do find that at, at burn events and other similar events. And it's also interesting to note how how well run the burn events are mm-hmm. in terms of there are people there looking out for each other's safety. Yes. There are, you know, there are people um, there to help you if you need help. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not total anarchy. Yes. It's well and just like the um, experiments as well. I mean, there was a context of a professor of having signed a waiver, I'm sure, like this professor's in charge of this and they're leading us. Like there was a feeling of there was a structure to it and with a burn event they have the 10 principles and when people don't live by those 10 principles watch out <laughs> yeah because uh, <laughs> if you drop if you drop litter on the ground <laughs> at a burn event um you will be uh, looked at 
way more harshly than if you're just on the street and throw away your uh, your <laughs> your packet of chips. Oh so. yeah, or if you take a picture of someone without them knowing, it's it's all to protect that that not all. It's to protect our feeling of safety, but they want to create that place where we can experience those kinds of things. The things that people did experience in the dark and i love the the name you gave this particular comic or shoot out the light um <laughs> basically you know and, and it's funny i i come home from a burn i remember my first day my very first one of course i was just on this emotional roller coaster for like weeks like everyone says you know when you come home just know it's going to be different and i ran up to someone in the gas station on in the middle of california somewhere i'm still wearing the outfit i wore to temple burn and I saw that someone was also coming from the burn because their car was dirty, ran over to the stranger and just hugged them because, you know, <laughs> that's what you do at Burning Man. And I was still in that mode. And and I thought that was strange. I would never have just done that out of nowhere. But I kind of look <laughs> at people now and, and every single person I see on the street after having been in part of this community as long as I and I haven't been a part of it that long. But I see people and I go, this is just a a potential friend this is just a stranger that i don't know yet this is just someone i could end up you know you know holding them when they cry or you know it's it just helps it shifts the way you look at the world and those social structures that we're so afraid to break yeah well i'd be interested to know how you sort of conduct yourself on a day-to-day -day basis cara because <laughs> what i do is i um i, I w work in an office mm -hmm. i sort of work in a co-working office and do my cartoons from there but i I need to escape the office multiple times per day and just walk around the street oh, yes. uh, to to refresh myself and you know get the legs pumping to yep. to wake myself up and yeah I always sort of I walk along the street and try and just look other people in the eyes to mm, to yeah. try and smile to them or you know raise my eyebrows or something mm -hmm. like that and yeah people just don't even seem to want even want to even look at me or no or to like you know i've got great small talk that i try and um, make with people in the elevator but uh <laughs> sometimes they they don't want to even engage with me so exactly you know my husband um, my husband gets so mad at me because i he's from the east coast he's from dc he doesn't understand why i talk to strangers but my family is from the midwest even though we live in la and i constantly talk to people on the streets people in the stores things and he just gets so mad i'm like you're Mr. Burning Man guy and you don't understand why I talk to strangers on the street. I'm like, I don't just keep it on the playa. Haha, ha, I'm a little Miss Burning, Miss Burnier than thou, I'm sure. But <laughs> but it's true, you know, yeah. I, I, it's just something I grew up with and I learned not to do it anymore. But after that, I said, you know what, this is just part of who I am. And, mm. you know, it's and it's interesting. The more I think about how this all fits into Rat Park, um, what we're actually Everything talking fits it, into Rat Park. It does. Rat Park is the center of the universe. <laughs> Ratpark.com, people. Rat Park. Go there for seriously. all your Rat Park needs. Exactly. <laughs> no, but seriously, it makes because the isolation factor um, of these poor rats that were stuck in a cold little cage with nothing but a drug to keep them warm. It sounds it sounds extreme, but when I think of the life I was living just before I moved to LA, I was living in a one bedroom apartment and it was, yay, I live in this great place and I got this great job. I was sitting in a cubicle all day. I interacted with people almost <laughs> A cubicle? Does oh, yeah. that remind you of something? It sure does, <laughs> you know, and, and like just the whole idea of how disconnected I was from almost everyone around me, even though I was around them all day. And it was really easy to come home to a bottle of wine and just look forward to that because I'm so excited 
just to be home and be able to relax for a few minutes before I go to sleep and get up and do it all over again. That was my fun, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't think I ever thought of myself as an addict, but I really, really, really needed that at the time. And I didn't like it, but I just didn't want to question it. I was too tired, mm. you know? But as soon as I found myself in a community where, you know, I mean, sure, if I drink wine now, it's because we're having a party and I lose track and I'm like, uh-oh, and then I, you know, go <laughs> home and down some coconut water. Yeah. But, you know, I, I don't have that desire the way I did when I was so isolated and living a life yeah. that I just did not enjoy at all. <laughs> well, I guess it's similar to your earlier uh, podcast episode about Lycan, the dog that you mm. you saw, who um, was Poor baby. What, what you thought. Yeah, it was a dog that was sort of stuck in a backyard yeah. and seemed happy enough but um yeah probably didn't know the full extent of dog happiness no, that was available to, no to it i yeah, just saw so... lichen again that was last may i just visited my mother-in-law again and poor little lichen still out there on his chain every day and if you bring oh. him a toy he runs over to experience interaction but mm. yeah so i um i draw these comics because it kind of reflects the way that I, I sort of want to spur other people to yes. acting in more positive ways, but it's also just a way for me to get things on the record as mm -hmm. to how, would I, how I would like to live my own life a yes. bit better. And I think if, if, I'm, if I come across as judgmental of other people in my <laughs> comics, it's, it's more me trying to pull my own socks up and improve my own way of behaving. Well, how did you get into this in the first place? Were you always artistic? Are you also, do you have a scientific background as well? Or how did this all come together for you? <laughs> That's a good question. I just really, I, I, I thought there was something about comics. I think I wanted to be a cartoonist more uh -huh. than I wanted to actually do the work of becoming a cartoonist. Just mm -hmm. I thought that would be a, a cool job title to have. Yeah. So um, I I just well I, initially I tried to draw funny comics with sort of a you know three panels and a punchline, but those weren't very successful. Um, I I just literally picked up a pen because I wanted a hobby to do on a weekend in contrast to my nine to five job that I was working uh -huh. during the week. Uh, the, the first thing I tried were these humorous comics, which people didn't find funny, which is <laughs> probably a, not a good sign That's if you're trying easy. to amuse people. Yeah, <laughs> and then, so I, then I put down the pen for another year. I still kind of thought comics was something I would like to do, but I just didn't know how I would use the medium to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the next, the next attempt that I had was me trying to didactically explain environmental concepts to people, which probably came over a little heavy handed because it was it was it was literally a cartoon me telling people, OK, this is how we Aww. this is how you need to behave to to be more environmentally friendly. And then that gradually morphed into the, the kind of comics that you're familiar with, mm -hmm. like Rat Park and Deviants in the Dark, where it's me just laying out the facts of a scenario and instead of coming to a propaganda type conclusion where I'm telling the reader what to think, mm -hmm. I, I, I take people towards a conclusion, but I allow them to, to think about it themselves and to um, understand what the relevance of these comics are for, um, for, for them, them as a person and for society as a, large, as, as a, as a bigger thing.
Yeah. And so the, the reason I did Rat Park to get back to your question from a little earlier、mm-hmm. is. Um, I didn't just draw it because it's an interesting experiment in itself involving the rats. I I drew it because I knew that there were human relevance to the events that that I describe in the comic,、mm-hmm. and the reason I know that is because、um, before before drawing the comic, I read a book by Professor Bruce Alexander,、mm-hmm. who is the main the main character. <laughs> I don't know if "character" is the right word to describe a real person. <laughs> He's the protagonist of the、uh, the rat. Park comic,、yep. and after doing these rat experiments in the late seventies and the early eighties, he turned his attention to human addiction,、mm-hmm. and he published a, a really great book called "The Globalization of Addiction," which describes something very similar to what you were、um, talking about before, where you were, you were,、uh, you know, working a cubicle job and coming home at night and sort of having having a glass of wine and. Not particularly feeling socially connected with your fellow human beings,、mm-hmm. and he—I'd、um, really recommend anyone who's interested by anything I've spoken about today to、um, to, to read this globalization、oh, of addiction book. <laughs> yeah,、um, he, Bruce Alexander, he thinks that addiction is a lot broader than what we. Consider when we think of addiction, because we tend to only think about people who are addicted to substances like alcohol, like cocaine, like heroin. He thinks that、um, that's only just a small piece of the pie in terms of addictive behaviors that people undertake.、Mm-hmm. Um, he sees addiction as a way of being overwhelmingly involved with something. And that could be anything from gambling. Like you could just have this compulsion to go and want to gamble,、mm-hmm. which of course you know that's not a chemical that you're addicted to. It's a it's an activity that you become addicted to.、Mm-hmm. You could be someone who's addicted to shopping, the kind of person who,、sure. if you go if you go to a shopping mall, you just feel the need to buy something.、Mm-hmm. Which、um, you know, I get that to a small extent. Like if I'm walking past a grocery store,、uh, I'll 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 run by just a list of things I could potentially buy from the shop. Like okay, like do I need a tin of tomatoes? Do I need? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. So that's just a low-level thing I've noticed in myself.、Um, it could be people who are addicted to work, the kind of、mm-hmm. person. Who、um, just feels the need to stay in the office to five o'clock, to six o'clock, until seven o'clock,、um, using that as a way of avoiding their otherwise socially disconnected life that they're living. Yes, it could be someone who's overwhelmingly involved in religion and、mm-hmm. goes to church not just once a week on a Sunday. They go every single day, and they're involved in. All sorts of fundraising activities and planning and that sort of thing. Well, and I, I thought about I saw on the list there you you'd listed fundamentalism and I really resonated with that because I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church, but I see fundamentalism as this like sickness that is not just in Christianity, but it's in religions all over the world. And I think it's growing so much. Just like you said, the globalization of addiction, the addiction to fundamentalism and the the certainty that it gives you and the The rush of of thinking that I am the only one who's right and everyone else, you know, I really want to explore that more as well, just in my own study. Yeah, so I guess what Bruce Alexander talks about in the globalization of addiction,、mm-hmm. which is quite a readable book for one that's actually, you know, quite scientific and full of facts, he's he's made it quite easy to read.、Mm-hmm. He、uh, he talks about how people, um, well, he he sees that. 
people should have a kind of a balanced lifestyle where you're socially connected to friends and family and you've got a variety of things that you do with your life mm -hmm. and he he finds that many of us are what he calls socially dislocated mm -hmm. where we don't have those normal um you know clubs and social associations that we go to um and he thinks that yeah we we instead of looking at our lives objectively and seeing the just seeing the horror of the bleak lifestyle yeah. and the bleak existence that we're living instead of instead of acknowledging that which is just such a such a depressing thing for someone to think about <laughs> yeah. if you've got no friends and you've got no rewarding job and you're mm -hmm. you're in a bad existence he he thinks that people who are in that situation they they turn to a crutch they turn to mm -hmm. something that they can use to to overwhelmingly fixate on whether it's drug taking whether it's shopping whether mm -hmm. it's religion they overwhelmingly fixate on that as a substitute for a, a, a balanced, socially connected lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, he even goes one step further and he thinks that um, he thinks there are many forces that could potentially do this. Like it could be, say, a communist government, which is, um, you know, pulling the strings from a central authority and ordering people around. Mm -hmm. uh, he thinks he thinks in other in other periods that's the kind of force that has um, has socially dislocated people. L like for example, when the British marched onto the Scottish Highlands mm -hmm. and literally, you know, pushed all the the Highland Scots off their territory and made <sighs> them come down to the cities and live in cities. Uh, so he thinks that. In the past, um, social dislocation has come from those sort of top-down authoritative um, forces. But he thinks that in today's um, in today's society, it's actually globalized capitalism mm -hmm. which is having the the biggest influence. So that he, he goes into more detail about that towards the end of his book. Wow, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. And wow, it, and, and, and it weirdly to me kind of started to boil down to when you're in that moment where you get to choose between the little morphine water, even if it tastes really sweet or the regular water, what the decision basis is based on is, do I have something to look forward to in the next little while that I want to be awake for? And, and that's yeah. like, that's, that just is the heart of it is that do we have something in our life that we're actually excited about? We're looking forward to. And, and that, that's not easy for everyone to answer that question. And I know there have been times in my life where I could honestly say, not really. Nope. Yeah. I, I don't really know. What? And, you know, you have to purposely go out and find those things. And and, and I we never talk about what happens when you don't play. I talk about on this podcast all the time how important play is, blah, blah, blah. Here are all the benefits. But this is this is the depth of it. This is the underbelly of it. And you know, I think that this is the part of it we don't really want to talk about that much. And that's why I've actually mm. talked longer with you than I usually do on these things. But <laughs> it's I'm, just so I'm good for a chat, Kara. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, well, I think probably both you and I, we've, <laughs> we've had different life. You know, we've been in certain um, job and um, social situations that we didn't really realize quite how unfulfilled we were until mm -hmm. we tried something different yes. and saw what the contrast was. Um, I guess after listening to your podcast, I it, it, it makes me think that I'm a candidate for getting more play into my life Yay. because I think 
I do a lot of um, kind of organizational type things. Mm -hmm. Like I, I organize a lot of social events around my local city. Like I mm. organize um, the green drinks in in Canberra. I organize the Sunday assembly in mm -hmm. Canberra. Mm. Um, yeah, um, but. <laughs> Uh, that uh, yeah, a lot of that is literally just sending out emails and getting websites mm -hmm. put together, which does kind of feel like work to me. Yeah. So I think um, there's space for all of us to introduce more play and more playfulness into our everyday lifestyle. Absolutely. And, you know, volunteering and, and I know a lot of us right now are working really hard to see how we can organize and how we can, you know, be out there to change the world and keep it from going into some really scary places. But don't forget if you while you do that, you know, to always, always make time for things that you really look forward to on a childlike level. Like I look forward to, you know, the things that I'm working toward coming to fruition, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. My childlike spirit says, I really just want to go draw something right now. Or I really just want to go for a walk, you know, to just listen to the little kid in you. Because yes, we want to make all these things happen. And we, you, you know, it sounds like you're volunteering for so many amazing things. And Sunday Assembly is, oh, it's so great. Um, but yeah, we just have to always hear that voice. Um, oh. But I will let you go. I, we've, I've been had you on the, here for so long and having a, I'm so excited for this episode. There's no way I'm cutting any of this. Um, but I really, really quickly, you have a new website coming out with three new comics. And I just kind of want to get a feel for So you've been working toward this. Um, what, what do you want to tell people about this new launch? Because I'm going to be sending them back to your old stuff as well. But yeah, well, I mean, you can get to Rat Park by ratpark.com. You can get to Deviance in the Dark by deviantsinthedark.com, uh, which are kind of, they're both nestled within stuartmcmillan.com, mm -hmm. which you can get to by stumcm.com, the first three letters of uh, each of my two names, stumcm. <laughs> and um, I'm not exactly relaunching the website, but I'm, I'm getting someone to to redesign it so that it's uh, because the old website was uh it was coded in 2011 or 2012 so and i guess we're, we're now we're now more in the smartphone era yes. and I, I i do support smartphones and small screens at the moment but it does leave a little to be desired so i'm just i'm getting someone to recode it from the ground up That's and great. as a little treat i'm going to launch three comics at the same time and also some video content as well um, so, uh, yeah, I'll be getting back onto my environmental theme, yes. the, the theme that no one ever wants to hear me oh, talk about. We I'll be talking <laughs> about Buckminster Fuller, the famous American inventor from the, from the last century and, uh, talking about just the, the massive quantities of energy that we need in our day-to-day -day lifestyle, mm -hmm. which he, um, he talks about these in terms of, uh, human energy equivalents. He, he talks about all the imaginary energy slaves that are pushing our cars around and that are that are running on treadmills to keep the light bulbs going yep. in our rooms uh, which is just a phenomenal amount of um, fossil fuel um, energy that we're using on a day-to-day -day level and then um, I'll also be uh, I've got four comics coming out I think probably two will be out by the time that this podcast is released mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure you'll really like these comics, actually, Kara. They're about um, my relationship with communication technology Ooh. and um, the way that 
I, I guess some of the habits I have, which are a little unconventional, like for example, I still don't have a smartphone. I still use an old sort of、What? Nokia brick.、Oh、and that's because I know I have the kind of personality, like if you, if you put me on reddit.com first thing in the morning,、mm-hmm. or if you put me on a news website, I will just feel this and I check what's happening in the news. Or if I check what's happening on Reddit, I'll just feel the need to just refresh throughout the day and to, to, to get little drip feeds of information.、Yeah. Or to check my email and then re- <laughs> recheck it 10 minutes later, even though realistically, whatever's in there can wait until the afternoon. There's no real need that I have to, to check it right now. <laughs> so I'm talking about some of these,、um, what I consider to be. Rationally thought out decisions, but I, I find myself in the vast minority of the population. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few people, I, I don't own a smartphone, I don't have a tattoo, and I don't.、Um... <laughs> <laughs> so,、uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting、That's、my、me. first one this year. That is my, one of my goals for 2017. At 42, I'm finally doing the thing that I wouldn't let myself do at 20 because. What am I going to think of that when I turn 40? So, what have I got to lose now? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have enough of a personality to get a tattoo like everyone else. So, yeah, I, 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 I'll, have to wait until, I'll have to wait until I'm enough of an individual to be like everyone else. Oh, exactly. No, just kidding. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for this time and also for all the preparation and the work that we've done going into this. That was, I have just really, really enjoyed this so much. Thanks, Kara. It's great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Visit playgrounding.com slash 29 for all the links we talked about in the show to Stuart's comics, to Bruce Alexander's book, and all, 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 all the things. We talked about so many things. Don't forget, Rat Park is everything. Ratpark.com for all your Rat Park needs. <laughs>